Good morning, church. How is everyone? I want to point your attention to the Word of God for us today as we make our way through the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 14 today, and I've chosen for us to just read a few verses there toward the end of the chapter, but I'd like to call your attention to John 14, verses 25 through 27. You'll see the, uh, the words of Scripture for us today on the screen. All this I have spoken, they went away, just like that, are they back? All this I have spoken, and away they go. No, are they, they're there now, right? You can see these. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things, and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Listen carefully. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. The word of the Lord. Let's join our hearts together and give thanks for the gift of God's word for us today. Would you bow? God, we do not receive these words lightly. We receive them with open hearts and open minds that your spirit might inhabit these words and inhabit us so that you might be very near. We pray that in the space where we are anxious or afraid, we will know your presence by your spirit as Jesus has taught us. And so now, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I think I've shared this before, but for years... Um, as I began ministry uh, years ago, and we gathered in spaces much like this. In fact, the pews were even green, the same color of green. I can see it in my head. Um, and I had the opportunity to stand and welcome people and then call them into worship. I would often say to them, um, surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. And sometimes we would sing those words, you know, surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. You know that one? I can feel his mighty power and his grace. So you know that song. And then I would say to them, so as we come into this place, we leave behind all that weighs upon our hearts and minds, all the troubles and anxieties of this world, all the burdens that we carry, we leave them at the door to come in here and know the presence of God. And I think back on that now, and I say, I, I say to myself, that was just bad. Why did you say that? I think my heart was in the right place, right? I don't think I did it intentionally. But the truth is, we do not leave those things at the door. But in fact, the invitation is that we bring our whole selves here 
All that we are and all that we have and all the burdens that we carry, we bring them here with us. No need to leave them at the door. And I say that because sometimes I look out at us and I look at my own self and I think, boy, we're acting as if none of that applies to us. Do you know what we just sang together? The praise team just led us to sing. I was so struck in that in the moment. You sang, we sang together. I'm desperate for you. Think about those words. I'm desperate for you. We sang together this longing for the presence and the power of God to sustain us and keep us in every way in the most desperate moments that that's the very air that we breathe. In other words, no life apart from that. That's why we're desperate, right? And I don't know, it felt to me like we sing them with a rather absence of desperation sometimes. I guess I want to take a moment to call out um, how desperate we really are, how deep our longing is for the presence of God. So, listen to this. The words that we just read where Jesus promises his disciples the Holy Spirit as advocate and helper, as presence and guide, end with this sentence. Um, Do not let your hearts be troubled And do not let them, your hearts, be afraid. Did you hear that? Did that strike you when you heard them read moments ago? I'm going to point that out because if we're going to sit with uh, this word of God for us today, that sentence, that phrase, do not let your hearts be troubled, do not let them be afraid, is actually the same sentence, the same phrase that begins the chapter. So if you have your Bible, this won't be on the screen. Notice chapter 14, verse 1, that begins this way. Do not let your hearts be troubled. It's almost if this whole section of teaching in John 14 is bracketed by that phrase. In the beginning, Jesus starts out, looks out over his disciples and says, do not let your hearts be troubled. And in the end, says to them, do not let your hearts be troubled. Which I don't know, to me, implies that when he looks out at at them, he has a sense that maybe their hearts are troubled. It's sort of implied, no? That their hearts are are troubled, and it makes me wonder, why are they troubled? And then Jesus, because Jesus goes on in verse 1 after saying, do not let your hearts be troubled, and says to them, look, I'm going to, um, I'm going to be leaving here shortly. But don't worry, because I'll go prepare a place for you, and we'll meet up later. You good? And they're like, we're not good with that. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. And then he begins to address a pretty severe case of separation anxiety. I think they know it 
they sense it. That the journey that they've taken is leading them to this place where the God who's been with them in Jesus is now going to not be with them and return to the right hand of the Father, and they're a little bit anxious about that. I mean, wouldn't you be? It's a pretty serious case of separation anxiety. And I get it. Anyone ever been left behind? Anybody have a, have a left behind story? I have one. I have actually a couple. Uh, when I was a boy, and my, my mom and dad aren't here, so that's good. They're probably watching on the live stream. Mom's a little under the weather this morning. When I was a little boy, uh, we got together with a group of families from church, like you do, and it was uh, a weekend, maybe a Friday or a Saturday night or something like that. We were all going to go to dinner together, and we met up at one of our houses, and then we, we all piled in. Uh, this, this will date me a little bit. We piled in a van, not a minivan, but a, a van van. And I remember the back of it was just a big sort of open, like lots of luggage space, and so the kids were just kind of packed in there. Seatbelts? What seatbelts? We were just piled in this car, and we, we went to the restaurant together, and it was in Wichita Falls. That's where I grew up, Wichita Falls, Texas, North Texas, anyone? So we made our way out Seymour Highway to McBride's, uh, landing cattle. See how I remember the details? It made an impression on me. And we ate at the restaurant. We were all there at the table, and the kids and the parents, and kids kind of at the kids' table. You know the kids' table, and the parents at the parent table, and... and um, uh, those were not far apart, but there was clearly kids and parents. And, and I remember after we ate dinner and everyone was kind of finishing up, I ran to the bathroom. I just needed to go to the bathroom, so I went to the bathroom. And when I came out of the bathroom, I came back into the dining room to our table, kids' table, parents' table, and everyone was gone. It's like, well, it, I, I thought I had maybe gone to the wrong part of the restaurant or something, so I looked around and uh, no. They were gone. Um, the waitress was good to notice me in my anxiety, kind of this young kid circling around with eyes like wide and welling up, like, what am I going to do? And she was good to comfort me. She says, well, let's go see if maybe they're out in the parking lot. So we went to the front door. I remember it was a glass door you could see through, and we stood there at the door, little me and the waitress standing there looking out where the cars were. Nope, no van. They were gone. So the story goes that they all got ready to leave and all the kids, you know, everybody's just kind of milling around. They all ran out there and the kids jumped in the back of the van. My mom says, you could ask her later. She says, well, I just thought you were in the back with all the other kids. They're all kind of piled in there. I was in my mind um, trying to figure out how in the world I was going to get home again. You know that sinking feeling when you've been left behind? Maybe you do. Or maybe you know it on the flip side, when you've left one of your kids behind or lost them. Some of you, have, where are my parents here? Have those stories. We lost our daughter Emily on the river walk. Yeah. Lots of people and a river that like kids could fall in and stuff. And we're like scrambling about the restaurant and then out onto the river walk. Nowhere, we can't find her. And we're mobilizing the forces like everybody around can see that we're anxious because we've lost a kid. And after a few minutes of panic, that deep anxiety, that deep anxiety, you can ask my wife about this. Um, we spot her 
You know how on the river walk down in San Antonio, they've got those little bridges that walk, go across. He was just on top of one of the bridges in the middle, looking over at the river, just checking it out, oblivious. Everything was fine in her world. Separation anxiety. It's a part of all of our experience, right? And it comes to us very, very young. I mean, if you've ever tried to put your kids down to bed at night, <laughs> you, know, you know that it comes to us very, very young. Because what's the routine? Uh, can you read me a story? Yes, read a story. Can you read me another story? Yes. Can you sing me a song? Yes. Okay, you've done all of those things. Can you give me a glass of water? Anybody recognize this? What's going on with that routine? Separation anxiety. If you dropped your kid off at school for the first time, you know it for you and for them, it's separation anxiety. What I'm going to say is that there's something deeply uh, within us that's created for connection and we form those connections because we long for them. And in fact, they are for us life, those connections. And when we get a sense, even if naively, that those connections are going away, we get incredibly anxious. Separation anxiety, we get it, don't we? Here's the thing I notice about the Gospel of John. And if you will, stay with me. I'm going to take just a moment to maybe reframe how we think about what's going on in the Gospel of John. Because it's not like the other Gospels. You've probably noticed this. If you want to understand what uniquely is going on in these different four different tellings of the story of the life of Jesus, pay attention to how they're unique, to pay attention to, to where they begin, especially. So, for example, and if, uh, if you have your Bible, great. If not, just think with me, but I'm going to ask you to help me out here. Um, this is where the sermon is going to go, the talk back portion of the sermon. So I'm expecting you to answer me. So think about it for just a moment. Pause here for just a moment. Let's start with the gospel of Mark. Where does the gospel of Mark begin? Do you know? I mean, if you have your Bible, look at Mark 1, Mark 2. What's going on? Where does it begin? It starts out in the beginning, uh, the beginning of the, the gospel according to, you know, it starts there. But then what's happening? What's the scene? Can you help me? I can wait. Isaiah. Isaiah, with the prophets, the prophecy. And then where is Jesus specifically? Where's the first time we, we see, uh, we hear of Jesus in the gospel of Mark? It's at his baptism. It's, it's John the Baptist. That's where we start, out at the Jordan with John the Baptist who's baptizing and then baptizes Jesus. That's where we start. Um, what about the Gospel of Luke? Where do you begin in the Gospel of Luke? Flip over there. Gospel of Luke, anyone? Ah, what's that? Speak, say. Yes, you got this whole temple scene and this announcement by the angels that Mary's going to give birth and John and and then you've got uh, the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. And you've got angels in the night sky and shepherds in the fields keeping watch over flocks. You're very familiar with this 
scene of the birth of Jesus, we start in Luke's gospel with the birth of Jesus. Where do we start in Mark? Out at the Jordan with the baptism of Jesus, adult Jesus, grown Jesus, baptized in the Jordan. In Luke, where do you start? Well, you get the birth of Jesus, right? Angels in the fields. What about Matthew? You start back with this lengthy genealogy. See how they're starting in different places in different ways? That's not by accident. And then you get to the Gospel of John. Where does the Gospel of John begin? In the beginning. Let me try it again. In the beginning was the Word. Word, 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 word. It's expansive, isn't it? And the Word was with God. And that phrase even, in the beginning, draws your attention all the way back to the way Scripture begins to talk about the origin of all things. In the beginning, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God in the beginning. It begins in uh, this concept, this, this, um, the expanse of the universe, the origins of all things. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And then, wonder of all wonders, John says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The whole premise in John is the problem of a distant God of the cosmos, right? Of the expanse between the deity and the creation and the created ones. That's what's going on in John. And he uses particular language and categories that really come from the Hellenistic world that is his audience, the Greek and Roman world that is his audience, in which their worldview is very dualistic. It's not that they're not spiritual. They're spiritual. They believe that the spirits and the deity or deities are up in the panoply of the heavens and that they're down here on the earth and there's this dualism between heaven and earth, between spirit and flesh, this dualism. Right? Tracking with me? The problem set up in John's gospel is the distance, the separation. You hear it? And so when John claims for his audience, now listen, in the beginning was the word. They're like, yeah, the logos of God. The... And then he says, and the word became flesh. They're like, <clears throat> mind blown, not possible. Deity cannot be humanity. What I'm saying is he's, he's using the categories of that worldview, the distance between God and humanity, but he's not reinforcing that to say that your goal is to escape the earth to get to heaven. He's saying heaven has come to earth and inhabited flesh. He's dwelling among you. He's dwelt among you. He's tabernacled, tented, existed among you. The whole shape of the story follows that claim. The first half of the book is the book of signs. Look. That which was before all things and is in all things and through all things 
is now enfleshed among you. That's the message of John. A book of signs pointing to glimpses. In Jesus, you get the full representation, these glimpses, these signs of what it means that now the deity, the God of all creation and all the universe is not far away from you and you're just trying to somehow escape all of this and get there, but that he's met you here, ground zero. And I'm telling you, that is different than this Greek worldview and this way even I find us talking about our experience of faith and of hope. As if somehow we're trapped down here and the idea is just to escape our flesh and get to some other state. The whole notion of God incarnate says that 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 is God is enfleshed. I think that's mind-blowing for us, too. We're not quite sure what to make of that. Suppress the flesh. The flesh is bad. Jesus said, no, I'm going to come live in the flesh. It's another way of thinking about it. In other places in Scripture, in Paul and in other places, you do get this sense to guard against the the flesh and all of this. But I'm calling you to think about the significance of the incarnation of God in the flesh, in the person of Jesus, not for Jesus, but for you. So in John's gospel, the disciples follow a Jesus that is the word become flesh, in flesh with us. So when we get right up near the end, as approaching here in chapter 14... And the Jesus who has come among us and is enfleshed among us is now returning to the right hand of the Father. What then? Separation anxiety. That's what happens. Maybe you felt that too. That separation anxiety. Belief in the nearness of God, hope in the nearness of God, experience of the presence of God. I'm going to pause for just a moment, not long, maybe Five seconds of silence for you to reflect and gather up. Maybe there's some moment that God puts upon your heart or your mind where you have especially experienced the presence of God. Just think of that for just a moment. My guess is then, if I were to ask you to think about a moment when you've also experienced the absence of God, you could also think of that too. Am I right? I mean, that's a, I'm saying I guess. That's, you've heard God's voice, you felt God's nearness, but now there are moments when God just seems absent. One of the first sermons I ever preached as a preaching student, way back in the day, late 80s, preaching class, first preaching class I ever took, um, part of the assignments was to actually preach. So I preached a, chapel, a, a sermon in the University Church of Christ in Abilene Chapel, small little chapel. The sermon was titled, The Silence of God. The Silence of God. Preaching that sermon, having to wrestle through that and preach that sermon changed my life profoundly. 
It was this text. Jesus left that place and and withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And there was a Canaanite woman who came to Jesus from that region, who came to Jesus and fell at his feet crying out to him, Lord, have mercy. It's my daughter. She's suffering from demon possession. Lord, have mercy. She's pleading. She's desperate. She's begging for help. And do you know what the next sentence in the text is? Jesus was silent. Stunning. What? I I appreciate that Scripture includes that moment because it's true. There are moments when God seems silent. What I want you to know is that the gift that Jesus offers, and really this is where... um, if, if John 14 begins, do not let your hearts be troubled, and it ends, this passage ends with do not let your hearts be troubled or afraid. What sits right in the middle of that is, look, I'm going to leave you my Holy Spirit. The Father is going to send you the Holy Spirit. Because what you're most desperate for God can give you in the gift of his presence by his Holy Spirit advocate helper teacher that transforms your trouble doesn't make it go away but it works in and through it and turns that trouble into peace thanks be to God into peace. In my most unsettled, disheveled, undone, worst version of myself moments, I have them. <laughs> you can ask Gain about that too. I think about what's at the root of that. It's deep anxiety. Now, if I think about what's at the root of that deep anxiety... Actually, existentially, meaning at the center of my understanding of what it, who I am, my existence, existential existence. It's a longing for something greater than myself. I'm desperate for it. You're desperate for it. You may express it in different ways, but it's, it's so central to who we are as human persons. We are desperate for what the peace that only the living God can give. I I want you to know that um, here's my take. I'm going to tell you what I think all that means. The gift of the Holy Spirit is advocate, helper, teacher. In the context of the Gospel of John, I believe that it's much more than the Holy Spirit is God's guide to help make sure that you get the instructions down. That's what we think of. Teachers give lessons, and then you're supposed to learn the lessons. 
that so much more than that going on in the Gospel of John with the Holy Spirit as your advocate and your teacher. Uh, we sang this song in church. We sing it, probably sing it here from time to time. It's old hymn, Break Thou the Bread of Life. I like that phrase that was in one of the songs we sang about the bread of life. We, do you remember? Break thou the bread of life, dear Lord, to me, as thou did break the loaves beside the sea. You know that? What's the next line? Say it. Within the sacred page, I seek thee, Lord. My spirit pants for thee, O living word. You know what's interesting about that? The actual original lyric to that song is different. Break thou the bread of life, dear Lord, to me, as thou did break the loaves beside the sea. And then the original line is, Beyond the sacred page, I seek thee, Lord. Do you hear the difference? What's the one you grew up singing in church? Within the sacred page. It's not that that's untrue. It's that we have, for the most part, understood the Spirit's work to only operate through the words of instruction in Scripture, which it does. But if I'm reading John correctly, if I'm reading the full breadth of the story of Scripture correctly, it's that the Spirit of God is operating in all things. And drawing us, it's within us, it's around us, it's in you, it's in all things. And all things are drawing me closer into the fullness and the nearness of God because my deep anxiety is that I'm not near God. I'm separated from God. Jesus said, look, I'm not going to be the word enfleshed in your midst here anymore, but that doesn't mean that God's not enfleshed here in all things permeating all things, filling you, guiding you, leading you into peace. The presence of God in the Holy Spirit, here's a phrase, is not to escape our flesh, but to know the presence of God in our flesh. There's a difference. The presence of God in the gift of the Holy Spirit to escape our flesh or, more likely, the presence of God in the Holy Spirit in and through our flesh. It's the thin places that we seek to inhabit. You know the thin places? In the ancient Celtic tradition, the thin places were those places where the veil between heaven and earth seems thin. Then I like that notion. For the ancient Celts, these were and are in the Celtic spiritual tradition, geographical locations, physical places where eternity seems to draw near or experiences where the veil between heaven and earth is thin. I like this is a quote. It's the one slide I have for you today. This uh, quote. I'm drawn to places that beguile and inspire, sedate and stir, places where for a few blissful moments I loosen my death grip on life and can breathe again. It turns out these destinations have a name. 
thin places. I had to share that. That's so well written. I thought about just trying to say it as if it were, you know, but that's not fair. <laughs> I wish I had written it. It's so good. I like the juxtaposition to just sit with this for a moment of beguile and inspire, sedate and stir. It's both, right? And I like the notion that there are moments that loosen my death grip on life. In other words, I'm, I'm so anxious, I'm trying to hold on to my life. And it's slipping away, and I'm anxious, and I'm fearful. My death grip on life. That loosen my death grip a lot, and I can breathe again. I like that. He, he says, it turns out these destinations have a name, and he calls them thin places. Maybe this is precisely something of what John has in mind when he talks about heaven come near in Jesus and the Spirit remaining. Opening up in us thin places, piercing the wall between heaven and earth. These are places. Surely you've experienced places like this, but they're also moments. Moments in our journey. When my daughter Claire was born, firstborn, took Gaina into the delivery room. I was there with her. We left our stuff behind in a labor room. It's different. It was different back then. And, and after Claire was born, I went back to the room where all our things were to gather them so that they could take her to um, postpartum, whatever. And, and it was dark. The lights were off. There was a window. I sat there in that chair and almost paralyzed. I was overcome with emotion. An experience of the gift of God's presence unlike I had ever experienced before. I kept saying to myself, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. It was a thin place, a thin moment when God seemed especially near. They, they come to us, yes, infused with the Spirit of God. We tend to want to make this notion, I think, probably because of our, the way faith has come down to us in our tradition, into something that does crazy things. No. Something that does supernatural things. And in a sense, it does, but it's not the crazy things. It's the very grounded, flesh, ordinary moments in which the veil between heaven and earth is pierced. And God is near. Holy Spirit, come. I had the same experience, opposite kind of experience with my other daughter. When the phone rang, and it was the summer after her senior year before she went to college, and she was in a car accident, and there's this guy on the phone, and my daughter's screaming in the background. And she's uh, a couple hundred miles away. And she survives a pretty severe accident in the hospital. And there's this, at the end of it, there's this overwhelming kind of moment of Lord God, thank you. Lord God, save, and God's presence is felt and experienced near, and it's tangible. I think of those um, moments. Truth is, this is all that matters. We can talk about a lot of stuff, and we should, about our faith and life and journey together as followers of Jesus. But this is all that matters the nearness and the presence of God and how desperately we need it. And why is it, I'm going to step on, I'm only going to stomp once on our toes, mine too. Why is it 
that Christian people, followers of Jesus, sometimes those who purport to be the most devout followers of Jesus, are the most uptight, anxious, fearful people in the world. If the Spirit of God lives in you, get over it. It's a gift. Come, Holy Spirit. It's a gift. Deep down, it's what we long for and what we most need. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And so we pray as the people of God down through the ages have always prayed. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Come in the power of your Holy Spirit. Come. We're going to sing um, a few more songs. And I want to invite you as we spend a few moments... Um, to sit in that space where you can own, sure, it'd be good if the praise team comes up, where you can own the deep anxiety and fear that grips us, and you can begin to sense the Spirit's presence and let that go. And if for you, that moves you to pray with someone, then that's great. If for you, if it's just to sit in that moment and to either join uh, the 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 songs that are sung, or to just let the words of them fall on you. To let the work of the Spirit draw you into life. It's what we most desperately need. So, hear these words as we begin to sing. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. To the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.